Hello, and welcome to Listen In, a podcast about the people, movements, and events that make the Spanish Civil War a part of Canada's cultural and political history. I'm your host, Karina Mickelson, and today I'm talking to Andrea Hasenbank about communism and socialism in Canada throughout the 1930s. And this is the kind of episode that made me want to record this podcast. What Andrea does is gives us an idea of how much work and activism and literature and protest and organization has gone into building the social welfare system that exists currently in Canada and that has existed since the Second World War. And one of the reasons I wanted to do this podcast is to make these histories more visible and to give us an idea of what it took to get to where we are and how quickly and easily things can be taken away from us. So I hope that this episode is educational and is galvanizing because we've done a lot of work and there's still a lot of work to do. So enjoy this wonderful interview with Andrea Hazenbank. Bank, and we're going to talk about communism and maybe pamphlet culture. Which are both of my favorite things <laughs> to talk about. And can you introduce yourself, Andrea? Absolutely. Uh, my name is Andrea Hazenbank. I am uh, currently a PhD candidate very near the end of my work at uh, the University of Alberta. I also do a few other things, including some political work and a few other things here in Edmonton, Alberta. But the context in which Karina and I are going to be talking about is uh, research and work on the 1930s. So I research pamphlet and different periodical culture from the 1930s on the left, uh, specifically in Canada, which is not something you would think there's a lot of, but the more you start digging, the more there is. Yeah, and we've already seen some pamphlets that I've discussed in this podcast and that you can find on the project website. So we know that pamphlets are an important part of Canadian participation in the Spanish Civil War, and I'm excited to know what kind of culture that emerges from. And they're also an important part of the recording of this podcast because (laughs) while Karina has been sitting here while we've been preparing, I keep disappearing and pulling out another pamphlet from somewhere (laughs) in my home. And... (laughs) Partly it's just they're really interesting objects to have and have around. And as a researcher, you don't always get the benefit of having some of your material in your own home. Yeah. Um, Especially as a print scholar. Uh, People normally are studying very rare things that you have to go to special archives and libraries for. Um, But when you're studying proletarian materials and protest materials, (laughs) uh, very often they are excluded from those collections. Not always. There are some uh, places that have really fantastic collections. Uh, I would like to specifically note the Robert S. Kenny collection at the University of Toronto in their uh, special collections library. And uh, the Bruce Peel special collections library at the University of Alberta is also quite well-equipped with a bunch of holdings, but uh, there is always the opportunity to find things in unexpected places and And claim them. You have studied a lot about communism in Canada, right? Or the kinds of different organizations that were related to the Communist Party. Do you want to talk about that broadly? Absolutely. So I didn't set out intending to study communism in Canada. I was really just interested in the print and the pamphlets and the periodicals, and through my work, became increasingly evident that a huge number of these were produced by the Communist Party of Canada or were circulated by them uh, after being imported or brought in from other places uh, like the United States or uh, the UK. So there was that. And then also uncovering the fact that what I thought may have been many different organizations were in fact many different front organizations or arms that were ultimately still uh, linked back to the Communist Party formation in the 1930s. I'm picturing like a communist octopus with like all these (laughs) arms just distributing pamphlets. Me too, just arms squeezing through the doors of like shitty boarding houses and down the streets in poor neighborhoods. between the legs of a cop. Yes. (laughs) That would make a great picture for a pamphlet. It would be an incredible lino cut. Um, The detail isn't so good to get, but (laughs) lino cuts are not known for their uh, finesse. Can you explain what a liner cut is? I absolutely can. Um, So 
graphic production on these pamphlets. So pamphlet, uh, for those who might be interested in some formal terminology, is usually refers to a small printed object, uh, usually with no particular covers, just paper bound. Usually uh, ones in the 1930s run between eight and, you know, 32 pages, something to that effect, depending on what's inside. And they are usually a mix of long and dull socialist <laughs> screeds uh, with lots of sort of very heavily Marxist language that's all but impenetrable. <laughs> um, they're not really super great for reading, but the other pieces of them are very interesting because you also get um, these incredible graphic covers or inset pieces, or you get advertisements for other yeah, or donation material, or subscription or the subscription blank or the donation. So you actually get a really clear view of how print was being made and circulated. And so the lino cut is one form of doing graphic art reproduction very cheaply and with actually quite a low level of skill. So the other defining aspect of pamphlets in the 1930s is you do not have to be a professional to make them. And in many <laughs> cases, boy, does it show. So a lino cut is much like a woodblock cut or anything where you're cutting an entire image into one uh, piece of material that then is pressed as an entire block as part of a press. Yeah, so like a large stamp. Yeah, kind of. exactly. Like a large stamp and you carve out the relief. So a lino cut is made on a piece of linoleum, which is a cheap and plentiful substance, holds ink really, really well. Uh, you can get very large blocks of uh, high contrast printing. So mostly graphic work done with lino cut is very black and white. And so it's all about that um, extremely sharp divide between what would usually be a white image and a black background or reversed. So many of the pamphlets you'll see, uh, especially those done by Canadians and out of Toronto uh, more than anything, have this. And some of that just comes out of that's part of the style at the time. But especially the material coming out of Toronto, there were artists and graphic designers and people who kind of worked together and saw this as a viable proletarian art form of itself. It wasn't just a poor imitation of something else. It was actually a vehicle to express um, really sharp ideas and really graphic ideologies being put into the way they were being expressed artistically. And while Andrea is explaining this, we're looking at a lino cut of a skull wearing like a military helmet looking at a swastika with a knife through it. It's stabbing <laughs> the swastika. Yeah. Um, you know, it's one that when I've got people over, it definitely catches the eye from yeah, my desk. It kind of sets the tone. It does. For the house. <laughs> yeah. It, um, and this is the manifesto of the Canadian League of Youth Against War and Fascism. Dates from 1934. And the cover is, yeah, it's one of the most dramatic and exciting covers. Mm -hmm. So you can imagine if you're a person going into bookshop or buy a newsstand and it would be pretty common practice to have a rack with just like paperback literature things analogous to dime novels magazines just like your regular sort of everyday print material mm -hmm. newspapers all of that and if you see this and you see a pamphlet with like a graphic image like that you are going to be affected by it in some way yeah you're either going to react to it or you're going to be intrigued and pull in so studying some of this material there is a, a graphic unity to a lot of the things that we see. And you see that come through in the postering and you see it in uh, the kind of materials that get put out for recruiting, for joining the party, mm -hmm. for, um, as Karina has no doubt talked about extensively, uh, joining the international brigades or yeah. kind of inspiring you to maybe subscribe to publications and get more in the know. So the graphic is one way in mm -hmm. and the way out could end up, you know, fighting and dying against fascism for your cause. There is a lot of conflict and nuance uh, within the international brigades, within international communism, within the leftist groups in mm -hmm. Canada. So I guess I'm curious what you have to say about uh, the Communist Party of Canada mm -hmm. and maybe its relationship to the Comintern, the international communist body, or to uh, the government of Canada, just... What was its kind of tra trajectory of the Communist Party? Where was the Communist Party? So the Communist Party was founded in Canada, I think it was 1921, roughly around there, and it was illegal, probably by the end of the 1920s. Uh, so <laughs> it didn't take much. 
Communist Party, of course, grew as communist influence grew across uh, the West through uh, the late part of the 19th century and into the early part of the 20th. Canada had a number of different socialist uh, affiliated parties. The Socialist Party of Canada kind of never really got off the ground, but, you know, was organizing and pulling some people together. And then, of course, the Communist Party was a specific target of some of the legal uh, restrictions coming out of World War One and mm-hmm. uh, the Winnipeg General Strike. So okay. uh, the Winnipeg General Strike in 1919 struck fear in the hearts of the bourgeoisie <laughs> across Canada because Winnipeg, which is possibly our most emblematic working class city, I would say, mm-hmm. in Canada, it's, it's really the Chicago of Canada, I think would be effective. Within a few days, a general strike in Winnipeg had shut down the entire city. And this was extremely alarming and possibly what was more alarming is the strike committee found ways to maintain essential services mm-hmm. and they would drive around with signs saying you know by the authority of the strike committee <laughs> so it was a very clear example not only of the power of a united working class to shut down normal operations but also to reorganize themselves and structure themselves and deliver those same things on their own terms it's horrifying. It's absolutely horrifying. Imagine if you were someone in your frock coat just passed. <laughs> they didn't wear frock coats in 1919. <laughs> but you get the idea that you've just ended the First World War. You're already quite decimated. There's been major sea shifts uh, regarding the power of empire, the power of a state. And you see something like this happening. And so, of course, the War Measures Act, which was on the books from 1917-1918, was a very useful way to start applying many of the restrictions that happened during wartime into non-wartime. So a lot of the provisions that later became Section 98 of the Criminal Code stemmed from the War Measures Act. Okay. And um, I'll tell you a little bit about that, but uh, the long-term trajectory of it is there's a, a chunk of Canadian law mostly around you know, really restricting the movement of certain people, certain forms of association, and um, circulation of certain kinds of materials deemed to be seditious or traitorous or problematic in different ways. And there's this sort of chunk of law that has moved in and out of legality, in and out of the books, depending on time period. It actually comes out of very old mutiny law. and. then kind of gets pulled up into uh, the War Measures Act and then into Section 98. But then you see it reappearing later. Uh, some of the things brought in under emergency power during the FLQ okay. bears many, much of the same language. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the post-9-11 uh, anti-terrorism mm-hmm. acts bears extremely similar language, again, moving in and out. So it's a piece of law that I think has always been kind of at the ready mm-hmm. for the Canadian state. Like it's, we've already drafted it. We already know how it works. Yeah. And it's just, do we deploy it? And do we have the sort of uh, political will among the public to do so? Yeah. And right now might be another time when it's kind of rising up to the surface. Yes, <laughs> it is. Or it might be a time too where people are actually very cognizant of kind of organized repression and protection Mm -hmm. of language and are perhaps more ready to resist such a thing. So I think it would be much harder to restrict the circulation of materials um, because the Section 98 uh, provisions in the Criminal Code of Canada, uh, which were struck down by 1936, so had a a very prominent but short period of time in the Canadian public, uh, they're very focused on print. They're okay, extremely yeah. focused on print. It spe- it specifies the kinds of print that are not able to be circulated if they come from a enemy or suspect organization. So it's not that they're restricting newspaper publishing generally. Mm-hmm. It's a restriction on freedom of association. But the interesting thing about the law is that print is seen as an extension of that association. Okay, so not just gatherings of people, but print as a... Exactly. Which... Is a very like uh, postmodern view of reader yeah. and it's like an imagined community. Publics. It is an imagined is. community. It is exactly Michael Warner's idea of the public, the yeah. attentive public, and so the Canadian law anticipates a reading public as associated with a criminal association. Mm-hmm. So part of that comes out of this idea that the state is afraid that just by reading something, you're transmitting an idea. 
It doesn't account for the ways people might use these things in different ways, how they might use them to signal each other, um, how they might be critical of them. It yeah. simply assumes that possession or reading is um, transmission. It's very guilt by association. Print was, you know, heavily scrutinized in this period. And by virtue of being enshrined in the criminal code, it really gave the state quite a lot of power. So one of the most famous early incidents of the Communist Party in Canada was the 1931 raids on the Communist Party headquarters in Toronto. It was one August night and the RCMP and the Toronto City Police raided the headquarters of the Communist Party and some private residences of some of its more prominent members and seized tons of material and used this as a precursor to throw Timbuk and seven other uh, there were initially more than that, but who became known as the Kingston Eight. So they were the eight communist leaders who were imprisoned in the Kingston Penitentiary under this provision for mm. being seditious and plotting as a terrorist organization. Okay, and Tim Buck was the leader of the Communist Party of Canada. That yes, he was. Um, he was the leader of the Communist Party through the late 1920s and honestly um, up into the 1940s and beyond. Oh, he wow. was a very, very prominent leader and quite an interesting figure. His memoirs of this time, 30 years, is an interesting mix of, like, propaganda and kind of, like, not quite oral history, but, like, selective memory of the time period. Mm -hmm. uh, unsurprisingly, it is digitized in full somewhere <laughs> on the internet. And one of the people who was arrested initially but wasn't counted among the Kingston Eight, I believe, I'll check on his name, was Tomo Kasich. And he was deported and eventually uh, ended up in Spain fighting with the Mackenzie Papineau Battalion. So. Yes, absolutely. And that power to deport was certainly yeah. employed a lot. So part of the fear around Canadian communists was this idea of foreign influence. And so Karina was asking about Comintern, but in fact it was this fear of Eastern Europeans. Canada had a few large waves of Eastern European immigration, uh, one right before World War One, and one shortly after. So one sort of through the 1920s and 30s. And they were very, very different in their political outlook. And the group that was coming over post-World War One came with quite radical ideas. So they were often people with strong trade union backgrounds who might have been resistant or dissident in what was now being formed as the Soviet Union, mm -hmm. came over with many ideas about this. And many of these people would have been Jewish. They would have been Ukrainian. They would have been Finnish. They would have been occasionally Hungarian, Russian, Romanian, other pieces like this. So when you talk about Kachuk, like, the name itself would yeah. bring scrutiny. Yeah, and a lot of the Library and Archives records of these men have very anglicized names. Yes, extremely. <laughs> and um, one of my favorite things about this, so, of course, having material associated with the Communist Party or many of the other associated groups under the power of the law could be seized. It couldn't be mailed. So the postmaster in Canada had quite a lot of authority to seize things from the mails. And I have had opportunity to see some of the files archived from the postmaster general oh, wow. at Library Archives <laughs> Canada, which I kind of came upon almost on a lark. It occurred to me to look it up. So it's one box and it tells you what the priorities are. So half the box is files of suspected communist material, and the other half is, like, suspected birth control and sexuality. I was really expecting you to say porn, but that's even better. No, it's, it's birth control material, and they're in the same box. So these were the two things that was being seized. And one of my favorite things in the communist side was a few books of what turned out what were things printed in Ukrainian and people receiving these or people inspecting the mails could not read Ukrainian, did not know what it was, sent it to be seized, sent it to the RCMP. And as it comes back, they found a translator, they did this, and it turned out just to be a book of poetry. And my favorite thing is the translator like did some translations of a couple of the poems and yeah. sent them back to show like this is not seditious material, but <laughs> is in fact just some like very lovely nature poetry. Oh my god, that's so Canadian. Too. It is extremely <laughs> Canadian. And in many cases, in fact, and I don't want to overstate um, the seizures, there weren't actually a lot of them through the mails. And in many cases, you see evidence of officials saying, actually, this is more trouble than it's worth. Just let mm -hmm. it go through. Mm -hmm. Undoubtedly, though, you know, the RCMP had quite a heavy amount of surveillance on the left through yeah, the 1930s. That's 
Maybe we can do a future episode just on RCMP surveillance. I think it that would, would be, be so great. fantastic. Leaving that aside for now, there was a very heavy surveillance of people in this period. And sometimes print and materials come up in that too. But it was focused on top leadership and the potential of different cells across the country. So mm-hmm. you talk about like, how is communism in Canada different than other places? And I mean such a truism of anything in Canada and it's really really regional like Mm. geography is a huge issue yeah um so Karina you are obviously working at Dalhousie you're getting quite familiar with Halifax and the work there typically Canadian scholars have seen Toronto and Montreal as sort of the focal points of the Canadian communist movement with Mm -hmm. with some justification I mean certainly the party groups were the largest there there was a lot going on and then Vancouver kind of emerges as like a really central site for unemployment and exactly because then as now um, when you're someone who is out of work and looking for work you're moving across the country so you've got young men uh, jumping the rails Mm -hmm. or going Mm -hmm. west in search of work so that trope of the west is still really active both in the writing and in the actual movements of people and often you end up in Vancouver Victoria at the end of the line I mean, the weather's much nicer. You're yeah. better off to stay there than in some other climate. Mm-hmm. And you still have access to those agricultural regions where you might get the exactly. job. Yeah. So you couple that with what had been uh, quite strong dock workers unions mm-hmm. and um, you know lumber unions and things like that. You get a different flavor of working class protest and rebellion. So many of them were certainly in line with organizing strategies that communists were using and people like um arthur evans would be moving around different Mm -hmm. western provinces and like pulling people whipping them up organizing but it was definitely remote from the control of other places certainly quite remote from toronto as any seat of authority and extremely remote from moscow and you also find even in smaller centers uh, different sort of Mm pop-up communist groups. I've got a couple of things. I did not get to photograph them at the archives, but they are two issues of a magazine put out by the Edmonton chapter of the Communist Party. They are just the most awfully produced things I've ever seen. (laughs) And I say this with the deepest of affection. Um, Notable because in one of them, there is an article including a history of the communist movement. It's this big, wonderful history. And it stops mid-sentence on the end of the page because there's no more paper and the issue is done. Oh, no. Intending to be continued yeah. in the next issue. There never was another issue. Yeah, and it you just find stops. that a lot. Like, we will finish the story in the next issue and the issue never comes. And the issue never comes. Yeah. It is so heartbreakingly <laughs> metaphorical for the leftist movement. <laughs> Canadian communism is, is really, perhaps more than other places, really governed in a legal framework okay and you find you know the early protests are all around this section 98 piece of law that's restricting association and movement and then galvanized in like the martyr figures of the kingston eight okay so the early parts of the decade are are extremely focused on that and much of the material being produced either by the communist party or by a group like the canadian labor defense league Mm -hmm. is very very interested in the law Okay, yeah. So you get lots of breakdowns of, well, what is this law? What does it mean? How does it work? And you also get some very interesting material. Um, there's one pamphlet, uh, Workers' Self-Defense in the Courts, which is about if you are a worker arrested under things, here's how you should act. Okay. And it is like, it's like, know your rights. It's yeah. the clash. It's know your rights. And it <laughs> goes through how the court system is rigged against working class people and the kind of ceremony and language that is being used to kind of keep you in your place and the kind of things that will be brought against you and it tells you here's how you tell the story it's how you do it and mm-hmm. gives examples of other people who have done this in in canada it's mm-hmm. it's a fantastic thing and some of the most significant pamphlets um like tim buck's indictment of capitalism is essentially just a transcript of his court trial oh wow and it reads like a drama because it's got person <laughs> in person, but like, so the figures, not just of cops, which you see a lot in communist material, but like judges and mm-hmm. lawyers and the proceedings of this show up quite a lot. Mm-hmm. And I found that unusual or unexpected. You expect, 
your communist materials to be more in the sort of trade labor idea where you're organizing a movement, you're yeah. pulling people together, you're rallying, you know, you're, you're doing not this just sort of pulling work. people out of prison. Yeah, you're not just <laughs> pulling people out of prison, you're pulling them into the streets yeah. to march and demonstrate. And there's certainly plenty of that. But much of that was happening outside of the party officially. Party, the Communist Party would certainly get its fingers in any number of hunger strikes and marches happening through the Depression, mm-hmm. but they weren't necessarily organizing them. Okay. Um, in many cases, there would just be self-appointed committees of people, often including veterans from the First World War who were okay. out of work, yeah. hung- hungered, and like know how to organize something. Yeah. That diffuse military skill is kind of an interesting thing, too. Mm-hmm. And actually, I should have said this earlier, but if you're interested in learning about the Winnipeg General Strike, I can't recommend history books because I'm a literary scholar, <laughs> but uh, Douglas Durkin's The Magpie takes mm-hmm. it from a veteran's perspective, and Margaret Sweatman's Fox kind of looks at it from a upper-class perspective, and they're both great books. Yeah, so Canadian communism, in a formal sense, I think is less formal than in other places. Okay. Um, less well organized there there was reaches like the the paper circulated across the country and you yeah. see evidence of high circulation rates in vancouver different yeah. parts of the prairies but still fairly centralized in ontario and absolutely Canada. and i mean it just part of that is population canada mm-hmm. is still a rather um low population over a large geographic area that is still true that was extremely true in the 1920s and 30s when we didn't even have the communication and transportation systems mm-hmm. that came in post-world war ii yeah or even really the push to have a Canadian identity. Yeah, yeah. And I often find it shocking how many places these uh, volunteers, many of whom were mostly unemployed <laughs> for large chunks of their lives, like how many places they got to in their search for work or just their exclusion from cities That's and exactly from relief it. models. So yeah, they got they traversed a lot of land, but there wasn't a lot of infrastructure to make yeah, that happen. It's true. And you see... It's so interesting to me. I'm just thinking of this now. So post-World War II is where you get that great post-war boom. You get tons of investment from uh, the state into Canadian culture and universities and an identity for Canada. Yeah. What you see post-World War I is after the 20s, you get the huge uh, depression and the complete loss of any social safety net or any protections mm-hmm. that were. And it is a decade characterized by, like, a loss of residency and a loss mm-hmm. of belonging. And not just in an identitarian sense, but, like, in the sense of if you weren't resident in a province for a number of months, you could be denied relief claims. Yeah. If you're an 18-year-old boy, you are expected to either be working or drawing relief as a single man. Yeah. Um, so there's this huge divide between the married couples and the single men, mm-hmm. uh, women, single women, had a whole different set of things <laughs> yeah. to contend with. But it's this idea that the state had a huge investment in, in fact, of, like, denying you residency, yeah. denying you belonging, and, in fact, just trying to keep you from settling in a place. Um, so I find that quite interesting that in the span of 20 years, we go from, like, oh, you don't actually belong here, you're not actually one of us, to, like, we are Canada, here yeah. we are. <laughs> yeah. We were looking at uh, some material from... Canada in the 1930s, and you know, we were talking about the difference between married relief, which was often in the form of uh, goods. Mm-hmm. You get food, you get clothing, you get direct relief, you get re- rent supplements. Yeah, fuel. Yeah, fuel, things that you needed to survive. And single men's relief, which meant uh, room and board in an internment camp and mm-hmm. extremely low wages, like 25 cents a day, mm-hmm. uh, but in cash. Yeah. So there's a distinction there. Cash is mobile. You want them to take their money and keep moving. Yeah. <laughs> But so, but um, the student was asking me, well, what about the young women? And I was like, well, uh, for the most part, young women, if they had a family, were there. Like yeah. they were part of that family. They were counted with the family. If they could earn wages in some way, they could. In a time of joblessness, women saw their employment go up actually per capita because mm-hmm. you could hire them at lower wages. Yeah. So jobs, shop, shop jobs, clerk jobs, things like that were going to women and being even more underpaid. Mm-hmm. And then you see lots of accounts of women employing things like barter or sex work or many different survival skills alongside paid employment or relief or different things. Mm -hmm. And some women in their accounts are extremely matter-of-fact about this. Like, they're like, yeah, of course, that's what I did. Like, I needed a taxi ride somewhere. So, you know, like, I paid my fare with my body, essentially. 
that doesn't make it into histories of this <laughs> no. period. Um, you do see in some of the, the records huge concerns about like unwed mothers and things yeah. like that. And again, being an unwed mother, if you were an immigrant, was cause for deportation. They could deport you just oh, for that. Wow. Oh wow! And my they did. God. Yeah, which is unimaginable. Mm-hmm. That's absolutely unthinkable. Well, it's not actually. It's yeah. what ICE does. Yeah, I mean, yeah. And I called my MP last week because there was like a brand new mother who was in the process of being deported. Yes, yeah, so, absolutely. I mean, so, this shouldn't be shocking to me. But it's, of it's, course, it also should be shocking to me. It should be shocking. <laughs> Again, not to diverge, many of these deportations are happening to who we would now term white people or Mm -hmm. majority people. At the time, they were sort of definitely provisionally white, Mm -hmm. is I think uh, the academic term that comes around. So uh, the the ways that race and ethnicity play into this are quite interesting. Guess what, everyone? White is not a fixed category. (laughs) Probably both of us, we both certainly present as white people. Yeah, but we... Wouldn't uh, historically would be not like. historically be so. <laughs> yeah, and I am very very pale and <laughs> and I have a like a Nordic name. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Doubly Nordic. <laughs> yeah. So so that's quite an interesting thing. And those questions of of race and ethnicity get mapped onto Canadian communism in, in quite a big way. Yeah. And that was certainly true in the United States as well. This idea that no native-born Canadian or American could possibly believe in these things, and it must all oh, be yeah. foreign agitators. And you can read foreign as Russian, Jewish, or just Eastern European immigrant, or just the other writ mm-hmm. large. Which is, of course, like not true, or in the sense that native-born Canadians were not exactly an extant category at the time <laughs> either. Yeah. Like, to be native-born in the 1930s was like, oh, your family immigrated like 10 years before the other person did. <laughs> yeah. Or it meant you were Anglo or yeah. possibly French, not yeah. always French. Uh, you've discussed Section 98 a little bit and how this communist organizing in Canada is very focused on legality yeah. and kind of negotiating the law. Does that change at any point? What is actually interesting is our more moderate leftists or social democratic leftists okay. are very into the law as well. Um, so the 1930s also sees the founding of the CCF, mm-hmm. uh, the Cooperative Commonwealth Federation, uh, the precursor of the NDP, who are now the government in Alberta Yay. against all <laughs> expectations and odds. But the CCF is is it is kind of analogous to uh, the Fabians in Britain. Okay. Um, so they are sort of this intellectual wing, joining up with the social gospel movement, forming a new political party in the early 1930s the communists and the ccf and their various thinkers were were quite opposed you see a much greater turn to unity uh, around the midpoint of the decade okay but um the ccf was filled with interesting lawyers and writers and poets i mean fr scott or frank scott in his juridical mode (laughs) was canadian lawyer one of our great canadian modernist poets Mm -hmm. one of the architects of the ccf and the ccf manifesto and its early platforms so this kind of question of the law is something that comes up a lot in canadian leftism which perhaps translates into kind of a focus on rights discourse later on in the 20th century and i think is is a thing that's kind of interesting now to grapple with um yeah because i'm thinking that um canadian citizenship became a thing in like 1946 47 i think it was the citizenship Act. so this might have been some of the discourse that's leading up to that i definitely think so the citizenship act is very interesting because it is certainly not the (laughs) it's not the multicultural canada that you start uh fetishizing in the late 60s and certainly into the 80s and 90s. Definitely in my childhood. (laughs) Definitely. All those beautiful mosaics. Yeah. It's a very legal answer to things. And part of this, I think, is because Canadian separation from empire and Canadian exercise of its own colonial power, the state of Canada also being a colonial power as well Mm -hmm. as a colonized power, happens through the law. I mean, there is definite horrific acts of violence and bloodshed and warfare, but equally there is violence perpetrated by the law. Mm -hmm. You think of our residential school system, that was all architected through legal structures. Um, You look at reservation system, Indian Act, all of that, Mm -hmm. that's all legal. But Canadian independence from Britain is also enacted through the series of legal milestones. So Mm -hmm. you get 
you know, the statute of Westminster. You get the person's case. You get yeah. all of these pieces that eventually line up to the uh, Canadian Constitution Act 1982. But, like, we are such a weird country in that we're like, look at this legal thing! Yay! Yeah. And I wonder if that has something to do with this new turn towards Vimy Ridge as, like, the founding of Canada. I know, I don't buy when, it. I mean, it's not. And if you it. want to learn more about why it's not, you can look at Ian Mackay's writing but oh, and speaking. But. Just read and listen to Ian Mackay's writing on all these things. Yeah. He's saying everything better than but I ever could. But. Trying to look for a more dramatic emergence of Canada than through a series of laws. But I do think what is interesting is this question of some of the law and the way mid-decade you get a turn. And you actually do get that turn from a legal fight to one that is more military and action-oriented. Okay. And so I've noticed this in the materials I look at. So I purportedly am studying the entire decade, but have found that a huge number of the materials I'm looking at are actually concentrated uh, between 1930 and like 33, 34, periodicals, everything. And you see, you know, like a pretty clear evidence that this is the Communist Party and their different organizations, depending on what was legal, what was not at the time. You see, you know, clearly a network of different party chapters, print, all of that stuff. And then you also see more of a social democratic influence rising. It's just all very exciting. But 1935 is this huge shift in two ways. The easy, obvious way is um, you've got a new government comes to power and okay. you have the changeover from R.B. Bennett's conservatives to Mackenzie King's liberals. Okay. That is a, a significant shift in power and approach. Mm-hmm. And Bennett's Kind of like this villain of austerity. Oh, <laughs> R.B. Bennett is perhaps our most hated prime minister. I would still go to bat for him as most hated prime minister. <laughs> and partly it's just he had the misfortune, um, like Herbert Hoover, of being in power when the Great Depression hit. Yeah. Um, which is is going to be horrific no matter who you are. But he also had the misfortune of being a millionaire. Like being an actual millionaire at the time where people fell into abject destitution. So the caricature of R.B. Bennett in every pamphlet, every publication, the whole thing is of him with a top hat. Yeah, like the Monopoly man. Like the Monopoly man, like the proper <laughs> capitalist plutocrat that you want to see driving around in his, you know, fancy car, all of that. But he's almost exclusively referred to as Millionaire Bennett. In any case, so you have this this political change, but you have what is, I think, an incredibly important symbolic change. Um, so 1935 is is really notable for the On to Ottawa Trek, which was, I think, a significant piece of Canadian history, certainly for the 1930s, that only recently has sort of entered into public discourse again. So the On to Ottawa Trek happened through the summer of 1935 and emerged out of, uh, as Karina had talked about, that sort of... Uh, movement of the Vancouver relief camp uh, men, uh, the different uh, trades out there, the camp workers, all sorts of young, disaffected, unemployed men who were extremely concentrated on the West Coast. Mm -hmm. And so they become organized and rise up. And you can read about this in an oblique way in Irene Baird's Waste Heritage. It does depict this sort of rise up. The relief camp strikers rise up. And they decide that they are going to march across uh, Western Canada to Ottawa, to the capital, and present their petition, their issues, to the Prime Minister himself. This is like an incredibly exciting moment. This is a, and throughout the 1930s, you have lots of hunger strikes, hunger marches, certainly across the United States, across Canada, across uh, England, there were some, a number of very famous hunger strikes and marches. Um, there's one on Washington that's just absolutely fascinating. There's a few extant film clips of it, and it's it's absolutely stunning. You don't oh, wow. see anything like that till the civil rights era. Yeah. Again. And there was a hunger march in Edmonton as well, right? Yeah, the 1932 hunger march in Edmonton is is one of my favorite pieces of local history because it is such a letdown. Oh. Uh, you have this incredible mass of people, and I mean... Uh, Market Square no longer exists in Edmonton. It was moved in the 70s, partly as a way of diffusing public meeting places. But like 10,000 people gathered in Edmonton in December. And it pulled in people from all sorts of surrounding areas. And they gathered. It was this most incredible thing. And they intended to march to the legislature buildings. 
what happened was mounted police marched into the crowd and as we see again and again like beat down people knocked mm-hmm. heads open fire there was a machine gun on the roof of the library oh. uh, what is now the Stanley Milner library was then the post office and there's there's pictures of just these crowds of people with children and everything mm. and it, it was not a bloody massacre it, it did not result in huge amounts of bloodshed I think there were a couple of deaths some injuries but mostly it just dispersed the crowd mm. for what was was meant to be a peaceful march yeah. and so the onto Ottawa trek as it moves through western Canadian landscape and cities is is recalling a number of these other efforts that have happened in different places sort of in a disconnected way yeah. in the early part of the decade and so it really gathers steam. Mm-hmm. So they follow the uh, railway line along the southern part, the CP rail line, Canadian Pacific. So they go through southern BC, through Golden, and crosses through the Crow's Nest Pass, which is possibly like the most communist part of Alberta still. And they pass <laughs> through Calgary, uh, not Edmonton, but Calgary, which is very interesting. And everywhere they go, there's this huge turnout of local people mm-hmm. to support them. And, of course, some of this is advanced organizing organizers and the strike committee is how they mention it, or the trek committee would do advance to a town and say, you know, people are coming. Can we get like a food kitchen going? Can we get a picnic? Can we get, you know, supplies? Can we get support? And people would turn out in force in the parks to like cheer them on and join and as they go. And can we pause and acknowledge just the huge amount of effort on the part of women to make all these absolutely movements and rallies and treks happen like just the amount of cooking alone oh my god (laughs) you cannot run any leftist movement any organization any march any day any election campaign without extremely stalwart women using their domestic skills using their beautiful um human relationship skills to pull people together to keep people fed to keep people moving to pull people in, it's incredible. Yeah. So even though the trek is is largely young men doing this, uh, there's whole communities of people behind them, mm-hmm. um, very significantly including women. Uh, in fact, one of the picnics was a Mother's Day picnic. Oh, I've read about all the Mother's Day kinds of organizations in uh, Vancouver, like when I was doing research on Irene Baird, and there's this great uh, image of a whole bunch of mothers forming a heart around this group of unemployed men and just calling them like their boys and yeah. the men being like little emasculated, but also like what a beautiful gesture. I, yes. That, <laughs> what a beautiful mobilization of like maternal um, feminism. <laughs> I actually quite love the way maternal feminism is is quite effectively weaponized yeah, through this period. Yeah, and it becomes, really becomes something uh, women can draw on. It becomes something that when... Some people who are not agreeing with the movement or who are genuinely concerned about all of these lawless young men, apparently, mm-hmm. roaming their homes and saying it's an affront to the community to have women and mothers who are, you know, exactly that stereotypical image of community coming up and saying, like, no, we're with them. We support yeah. them. Like, that's an incredible way of turning it around. And when the boys, like, they are always called the boys. The trekkers yeah. are always called the boys. And by and large, they were very young men, like teenagers, early 20s, like young, 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 painfully young. It's important to remember that through this as well. So through the summer months, um, they are making their way across the prairies with great success. And they come to end in Regina, they pause. And it's at this point, we're getting close to Dominion Day, which is now Canada Day, was then Dominion Day, July 1st, uh, which is Canada's national holiday. And it is quite evident that, you know, there's quite a lot of trekking to go still before hitting Manitoba, Ontario, Quebec, all these other parts of the country, they pause. And so the decision is taken to send a small group out to Ottawa Mm -hmm. as sort of the representatives of this and say, here's our petition, here's our demands, here's what we want to happen. So this happens. So an advance guard goes out to Ottawa. Meanwhile, the rest of the trekkers are there. And they are being threatened with um, being sent to internment camps, being sent to relief camps at Lumsden, Saskatchewan nearby, uh, of being dispersed. But there's kind of like a a very tense detente happening for these few days. And so the the group of men, Arthur Evans and others, go to Ottawa and they they present their petition to 
the federal government. I believe R.B. Bennett does not actually meet with them. He sends a deputy of some kind. Mm -hmm. Uh, They present their uh, sort of manifesto and their demands. It is utterly refused. They are denied any opportunity to have their say, anything to heard. And in fact, they are characterized as dangerous and criminal elements. And the outcome of this is the advance party comes back to Regina to report on this. It is July 1st, Dominion Day. And at the point of a peaceful gathering of people to relate this, a riot breaks out. A police-instigated riot breaks mm-hmm. out in Regina. And several people die. Uh, the, it's a horrific act of violence um, that does end with a number of people being dispersed, put to the different relief camps. It's just, it ends in this spectacle of police and state violence against young working men with nothing who have built up this feeling of like goodwill and support all the way along yeah and to the community members who were at the rally with exactly them, right? yeah. and it is to my mind just the thing that breaks the movement mm-hmm. so you kind of it is this just heartbreaking diffusing of things and so what happens is in october that year you get a, a new federal election you get, for the first time, candidates on the left being elected. So you get CCF candidates. You get a liberal majority government. You also see a few more hard right candidates, mm-hmm. unsurprisingly. But for the most part, it stays fairly moderate. And then one of the things that the Kenzie King's government runs on is that they will repeal Section 98. And they, in fact, do. They okay. repeal it. Yeah. And that kind of takes some of the steam out of the movement. A movement that was so very focused on this piece of law once that is gone, the rallying point is gone. Once the morale is broken from this march, it's all quite diffuse. And, as you will undoubtedly hear repeatedly throughout this podcast, there's a new enemy on the horizon. Mm-hmm. It is not just the bourgeois. It is yeah. not just the Canadian state. It's it not is even just like unemployment and poverty. It's not <laughs> poverty anymore. It is fascism. And so from 1935 until the Second World War, what you see is this call for unity. And it is a break from Comintern. Mm-hmm. It is something more in lines with the popular front you see in the United States. In Canada, it was mostly just sort of referred to as unity. Okay. It's this idea that the Social Democrats, uh, the Communists, like anyone sort of progressive-leaning, anyone opposed to fascism, as it emerged and became known, sort of is like, well, we should stop fighting each other. We should come together, find some common ground, and focus on this. And so you get, through the latter part of the decade, the Depression begins ending because nothing is better for the economy than a war. Mm -hmm. So you suddenly have a place where people are getting back to work. You suddenly have uh, the army again as another place where unemployed young men can go. Yeah, I was about to say, now you have a place to put all those unemployed young men. You now certainly they're so valuable. do that they're so valuable and they've become so good at marching across countries and living in camp conditions. So yeah, so you have the loss of morale. You have a massive change in the geopolitical conditions. But also, again, getting back to that legal part, so many of the demands kind of got filtered into our welfare system. Mm -hmm. We got proper unemployment insurance. We got cash-based relief. We got, um, like, expanded benefits for mothers and things like that. And that was just at the end of the 30s. When you come into the post-war world, like, that is the beginning of the building of that social safety net, which really takes out when people aren't desperate, they're not getting in the streets. Yeah. So the greatest way to diffuse a communist threat is to build an extremely healthy middle and a very strong social safety net. And you see that is eroding and disappearing now. Mm -hmm. And it is, again, turning people into things. So your extremely hardline communists will say, like, that is the point. Like, you're buying off people with these things. It's, It's a distraction. It's a way that capital just finds a way to sort of make a compromise and reabsorb it's not permanent it will it's not success it's not success just because you are comfortable and safe now does not mean it's success but i mean it is also important to know these histories of how these things came about because people worked really hard for these things that now we are losing that's exactly it and i mean oh the protection of our social safety net and the possibility of creating what you might call a middle class is uh, is uh, incredible it's 
one of the greatest achievements, I think, in mm-hmm. in this country. The period for people in the West, people of particular racial backgrounds, various different things, but like between 1945 and like 1975 is probably the period of greatest comfort and prosperity for the most number of humans ever in human history. Wow. I would go to bat arguing that. <laughs> there are so many holes you can poke in it, but it is the closest we have come to distributing wealth equitably Mm -hmm. and there's still huge disparity and of course that didn't include a lot of people you know didn't always include women but even for people who were on the margins of that the prosperity was still better Mm -hmm. than it is now the canadian state and the different provinces put in the investments for post-secondary put in the investments for affordable housing and social welfare programs and Mm -hmm. put in the money to do that and had the tax base to do that And it was a choice that everyone agreed was for the greater good. And in a cynical way, was a way to stave off full revolution in the streets. (laughs) It was a compromise, right, between capital and labor. It was the time of strongest labor unionism, uh, which is a huge part of all of this, Mm -hmm. of protecting those rights and still fighting for them. And so it's something that, like, was so short-lived and is the reason why all of our boomer parents and grandparents like cannot fathom the lives of millennials and young people now. They yeah. just cannot understand growing up without knowing that those things were guaranteed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and I'm a little bit older than Karina and experience perhaps slightly more sense that these things were there and have seen them completely drop off mm-hmm. like since the time I started my undergrad education and people entering university now have never known these sorts of things. The right. politics of austerity is a deliberate erasure of these other things. Yeah, okay, so that's really interesting. So there's a shift towards kind of this building of a social welfare but also this attention to fascism. Yeah, um, and and it's both tied around war. It's both tied around the power of total war in the Second World War. So you certainly have a morally justifiable enemy in uh, fascist Germany and the Axis powers. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's it's not a... It's a war you can feel good about, you know? <laughs> yeah. So you've got a very clear and compelling reason to go for war if you're a person who might be on the fence about pacifism or whether or not war is justifiable, like the acts of Nazi Germany is, is, I think, a moral imperative for a lot of people. The war is certainly about many other things, but that is a rallying point in a huge way. Mm-hmm. So you've got this, and people are like, we cannot keep fighting amongst ourselves about who is more or less communist. Let's just find our common ground, which is we can't let those guys come in charge. So yeah. you have that happening. But then you also have just the effects of a war economy. And how that makes possible the revenue generation and not just the money that comes out of a war economy, like higher production, things like that. But the fact that during total warfare, World War One, World War Two, people put faith in the state and gave up enormous powers to the state mm-hmm. and got used to the state organizing things. Yeah, okay. And yeah. so at the end of the war, you've had... Canadian government that for six years has been rationing food, has been organizing supplies, has been sort of like marshalling human resources, has been controlling agricultural production, has been controlling building industrial up a production, exactly, yeah. building a huge transportation infrastructure, like all of these things. And people were like, huh. And then when the state comes back from war and is finding all these other new ways to invest, it's war gotten gains. Mm-hmm finds natural ways to do that through parts of the state that got built up through the Second World War. And people were already primed to accept those things and found great benefit in them. Mm -hmm. We were not afraid of the state in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. We mistrust our state quite a lot more now. Yeah, that's really interesting. So you kind of trace this really interesting trajectory like from the early 30s to the late 40s and even on. And now we have kind of a frame in with which to think about what's happening with mm-hmm. the Spanish Civil War. Exactly. And like who is interested in it and why and how do they how does that energy move out of the communist and leftist movements of the early 30s mm-hmm. and into a national yeah. 
war project. Yeah, and it's so interesting too because of course the Spanish Civil War is is not fought by nations. It's not fought no. by states. It's fought by individual brigades of international volunteers. So yeah. it is actually quite anti-statist in a huge way. But it is a testing ground for the kind of warfare that happens just years later. You know, in terms of the technology, in terms of the kind of fighting in city streets. You did yeah. not see that in World War One. You had trench warfare in World War One, but the kind of bombings of cities and like Warfare in the streets was yeah. something that the Spanish Civil War is absolutely filled with, is incredibly horrified by, mm-hmm. but is something that happens in German cities, in British cities, is the Blitz, it's in French cities, it's the occupations all across. Yeah. It's city sieges. And on the level of print, I haven't read many of the pamphlets from the early 30s that you have read very closely, but you're talking about impenetrable kind of Marxist language. Yeah. Whereas the pamphlets that are merged around the Spanish Civil War, I've done text analysis, like they don't use the word communist, Marxist, socialist, they use the word democracy, right? So they are already anticipating the shift and they're already reaching for a wider audience, right? And and it's a compelling argument yeah. that was very effective. And and I do think there were people seeing like, okay, if we don't win this fight, we are going to have a much bigger fight. And when you're recruiting for an international brigade, like if you just rely on the communists, you're not going to get a lot of people. Yeah. So you broaden it up. Yeah, but that sense that democracy is something worth fighting for kind of leads into looking towards a state as something that you can trust, right? Yeah, it is. It's yeah. so weird because I don't think leftist movements now would say so. I mean liberal movements do. Mm -hmm. Um, Liberal democratic movements definitely see faith in orderly good government and just like full voter participation. And Mm -hmm. I see a lot of benefit in that too. I've worked many an election campaign trying (laughs) to argue to people like, yeah, voting's really great and you should do it. It definitely makes a difference. Yeah. But so (laughs) I do think that there is still in in our current political climate a faith in by liberals of this. Mm -hmm. I think leftists, which I certainly do not conflate the two, mm-hmm. do not have that faith in the state anymore. They, in fact, see the state as the agent of evil, as yeah. the agent of fascism. And in fact, liberal participation in this is only appeasement at best. Yeah. And is in fact not complicity. not by fun socks. And we can kind of look back to the episode on Norman Bethune. And the ways that he becomes so radical on his tour of Canada after he returns from Spain, because he keeps calling out the fact that Mackenzie King shook hands with Hitler. Like, and that's kind of what's happening now. Like, we can't be distracted by how nice Justin Trudeau is. We have to call attention to the ways that he is allying himself with the wrong. Yeah, like when we're still engaged (laughs) in arms sales. In Canada, we are feeling very self-congratulatory right now because Mm -hmm. we did not elect a a literal fascist. Like... And certainly in terms of personality and charm and, like, putting a good face forward, yes, we have a government and a prime minister who is excellent at that, who is doing image cleanup. He is a great PR person. Mm -hmm. But I think we are also getting the sense of, like, our geopolitical entanglements and our domestic failures are, are not living up to this democratic ideal that we're being sold or that we're selling to the rest of the world. And a good, strong, liberal democratic state, I think, rests on very robust social welfare programming. Mm -hmm. You cannot have, um, you can't have anything ethical under capitalism, period. But you can't have (laughs) a strong, coherent, cohesive state with massive inequalities and people actually living in poverty or in such yeah. straits of precarity. Yeah, and having no access to clean water or yeah. no access to health care. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, you you cannot expect people to live like that. Mm-hmm. And when we see people are put in conditions like that, they rightfully protest, get out in the streets, and act. Mm-hmm. And so what we are seeing is people acting, and we are seeing extreme reactionary reactions Mm -hmm. right-wing forces coming against it so that is less true in canada at this time at this time of recording our uh, neo-nazis are slightly more scattered and not quite as extensive i mean they're there we do not have a nazi as our prime minister though yeah we can at least say that what an achievement this has raised a really interesting question for me 
because I think a lot when I'm reading this stuff and when I'm doing this research about failure and how mm-hmm. do you, how do you like dwell on a history of that is a failure like the Spanish Civil War? Yeah. Um, and like, you raised yeah, and you talked about the hunger strike or hunger march in Edmonton as a failure. But you also cast success as something... You really troubled what success would look like for a lot of these movements. Yeah, and I mean, the Aunt Ottawa trek is a complete failure. Yeah, like, so many of these things are failures. But then this move into a more liberal government uh, and the scattering of a leftist movement kind of suggests that we're not really sure what success looks like I yet. Know. Or we haven't really seen it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I think that would be true. I yeah. mean, at best, we've seen incremental improvements, but nothing fundamentally changing we've seen better safety measures we've seen better padding and buffers come in but that can always get taken away that can always be rolled back and i mean a success that can be so easily stripped is is nothing there's no success there that's not intrinsic that's not an actual change to anything um it means life is comfortable for some for longer yeah but it just means we will be having these same fights again in 50 years, in 60 years. Yeah. It's it's just going to keep happening. That's a good thing to think about right now. Like, we know what failure looks like. We've been through many kinds of failure. What we need to focus on, we don't need to be afraid of failure. We need to focus on what we think success for our movements is yeah. going to look like and how we're going to get there. Yeah. And when even failure comes with, some kind of incremental Mm -hmm. bump like yes that is failure in terms of total revolution but it is a failure that in fact paid off for the vast majority of people Mm -hmm. in small supportive ways which is you know not that is not the great betterment of everyone that we would like to see but it's something yeah you know to (laughs) not be living on relief rations of two dollars a day to not have surgery on your kitchen table to yeah. not be thrown out of your family home to go live in an internment camp like mm-hmm. these are important things these are great things these yeah. are things that we want people to have but we can't just accept them as the end yeah we don't just accept our consolation prize as the thing we are given you say oh right i will enjoy this and i'll be back next year <laughs> yeah yeah, I yeah. will be crowned Miss Revolution. You just fucking wait. But I will accept this Miss Congeniality yeah. Award this year. <laughs> you build on your small victories. You make sure people know what they mean, but you don't accept them as the end point, is I think it. And I, I worry about a political discourse that means, like, again, in the American context, like, oh, they've stopped this terrible bill, so they're not actively killing us today. We won! Yeah. It's like, but... Yeah, and that kind of goes back to your sense of, like, the fixation on legality mm-hmm. in the first half of the 30s, like, that desperation to just stay out of prison. <laughs> yeah. Um, and not being able to move forward quite yet, or not yeah. being able to focus energy on... Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I mean, there are certainly many, many heroes of the left who have found being in prison to be actually a very galvanizing experience for them. But, <laughs> yeah. No one should go to prison. No. No more prisons. Yeah. Abolish all prisons. Abolish all prisons. Great. Thank you so much for talking it's to me. It's my absolute pleasure. Yeah, that's that was wonderful. I learned a lot. <laughs> and I'm sure too. our imaginary listeners did too. <laughs> I'm sure Kevin will enjoy this podcast <laughs> immensely. Today's episode was hosted by Karina Mickelson and Andrea Hissenbake and produced by me, Karina Mickelson. This podcast is supported by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council and Canada and the Spanish Civil War. As always, you can find all the sources we mentioned in today's episode on our website, SpanishCivilWar.ca slash podcast, and they'll be listed under our show notes. If you want to find more work by Andrea Hasenbank, you can follow her on Twitter at A.G. Hasenbank. That's A-G-H-A-S-E-N Bank. And you can check out her wonderful research blog, Prolet Arts, which I will link to in our show notes. You can get in touch with us through Twitter at Canada SCW, and you can contact me by email, karina.mickelson at dal.ca. That's K-A-A-R-I-N-A dot M-I-K-A-L-S-O-N at dal.ca. Our intro music is Libertad by Iriarte and Pizzoa, and it's from the Free Music Archive. And our outro music is Which Side Are You On, performed by Annie DeFranco. 
I'll be back in two weeks' time to talk about radio and the Spanish Civil War. The Spanish Civil War was an innovative time for radio technology and radio dramas. And I'll be talking about how the war played out on the airwaves. So listen in. They stole a few elections, still we the people won. We voted out corruption, big corporations. We voted for an end to war, new direction. And we ain't gonna stop now till the job is done. Come on, all good workers, this year is our time. Now there's folks in Washington who 